0: Morning. All right. Well, we're going to do something a little different today, just because we're doing the baptisms. Thought I could do just an overview on um, believer's baptism, from the scripture, but also a little bit of church history, and hopefully that's an encouragement to you and just a good reminder why are we why do we baptize believers? And so we're going to look at several passages and just talk about baptism's significance and, and its beauty. And really, we'll just start from there. But let's, let's pray together before we jump in. Father, we're looking to you for help. We need you every day, and we need you today. Thank you so much for um, just baptisms, uh, you changing people's lives, and um, the forgiveness of sins. We're very thankful. And thank you, Jesus, for being willing to die um, to make that possible. We're very, very thankful. And we look to you for help in this message, uh, to understand your word, and just help us each day to press on trusting you. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, well, let's start. um, There's going to be a lot of different verses. I won't make you to turn to all of them, but. Uh, let 's turn to a couple of these together let 's just start in Romans chapter six and talk about what baptism signifies what why do we baptize? Why do we go and go out to water and dip someone in water and while you 're turning there i 'll just say this that the word baptism uh, in to kind of in translating it in English, they left the Greek word baptizo, um, they just left it there. And what it means is to, basically to dunk, (laughs) to fully dip. And so, in some ways that kind of limits controversy between Presbyterians and and the believer, Baptists, I guess you could say, people who believe in believers' baptism. But, just so you know, the word baptize just means dip, dunk. (laughs) And so, in the scripture, whenever it talks about baptized, it just means dunking. Um, and the idea of, you know, kind of sprinkling for baptism, that doesn't really enter the picture until later. But let's start here with that preface in Romans 6, starting verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead... By the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So when we think of baptism, what does baptism signify? You know, washing comes to a lot of people's mind first, but in terms of just the number of scriptures that talk about the significance of baptism, actually, life and death with Christ is the primary image that is connected with baptism. The significance of baptism, the sim- symbolizing us dying and rising with Christ, and you really see that here in this passage. That when we are, when someone's baptized, it's showing the picture of what has happened to them. Internally, that they have been united with Christ in his death. And in being united with him in his death, they're also united with him in his resurrection. And it is also a good reminder to us of the significance of the resurrection. You know, we talk about Christ's death on the cross a lot, but equally as important is his resurrection. Because on His in his death on the cross, Christ washed away our sin, took our punishment. But in his resurrection, we see that punishment being satisfied, the new life that we have, that we don't have a a martyr who died for us and is gone. We have a living Savior who is with us, just like Andy was talking about today, sanctifying us. And so we're united in his death and resurrection. And so we have new life. And so baptism is this, this is the way I'm going to say it, it's an outward symbol of an inward reality. It's an outward symbol of an inward reality. That Baptism doesn't actually cause you to die on the cross with Christ and rise in resurrection with him. It's an outward symbol of what's already happened through faith. That through faith, each believer is connected to Christ's death, is taking it upon themselves, his blood, by faith, and their sins are washed through the blood of Christ by faith. That, like it says here in Romans 6, our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, and that, so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin, that we, in a spiritual but real connection, are crucified with Christ, and then we share in His both forgiveness through Him, but also His new life. Let me give you a couple more verses that just kind of get across the same idea. You don't have to turn there I'll, I'm going to go kind of quickly just for the sake of time. Colossians 2, and this gives a similar idea. In him you also were circumcised. This is Colossians 2.11. Um, I'll read it here for you. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Let's pause right there. I'm going to read a little bit more. But notice, how were we raised with him? Through faith. Through faith. Okay, you see that connection explicitly laid out there. Now verse 13. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Okay, there's several more that we could read, but I'll stop right there. The first outward symbol of an inward reality of baptism is that we have died with Christ and we have a new life in him. That it really is true that the old person that you were before you trusted Christ, that person died. And you're a new person. A person not only for because you're forgiven, legally you're a new person. It's kind of like, you know, this. Um, there's different movies where kind of the the plot is that somebody does a crime and they go into hiding until a certain you know, time period passes and they're no longer legally bound by, by what they did. And in some ways, um, that's kind of like with Christ. We really are not bound by our crimes. But it's more than that. It's not just, oh, we got out of our sins. It's that we didn't, we didn't have to pay the punishment that we deserved. It's more than that. It's that we actually are made new on the inside. The criminal that doesn't get punished for the crime, nothing has changed about them, right, on the inside. And what happens in Christ is not only are we forgiven and our debt is paid, that we're made new. That we have a new heart. That we God takes out our heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. He makes us a new person. That we are born again. And we are new. And that's one reason I think we should be able and willing. This is a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's kind of important in a connection to talk about our sins and failings because that person really is gone. That we can say, yeah, I was addicted to this. I I really struggled with this. I was hiding this and that. Um, and just be open, especially, at least for me personally, uh, I think about with my kids, just about what I was like before I became a Christian, what I acted like, how, you know, you're throwing a tantrum and you want to hurt people because they didn't do what you want. I used to do that too, <laughs> you know. Um, but Christ saved me, and I don't want to live for myself anymore. And anyways, all that is to say that one way we're delivered from shame and guilt is the reality that we're new people. That the person that was living for themselves, that person really died, and now I'm living for Christ and through Christ and with Christ and empowered by Christ. And that's a totally different shift. I'm a new person. Um, the Andrew that was is gone, and there's a new Andrew. Um, changed, not by my own effort, but by Christ. And so this is a a reality, and this is what we're celebrating in baptism, and we're proclaiming and showing the outward symbol of the inward reality that for my whole life, I was going this way, living for self and sin, not interested in in trusting the Lord, Um, and now I'm going a totally different direction. I've repented, and what I want to do is I want to live for Christ, through Christ, uh, with Christ, and I want to be forgiven, and I'm trusting that I have been by His blood, that I really am united with Him, and that not only am I dead with him uh, that I really died and my sins really were paid for but that I have a new life and he empowers me in that and so we're flying through that but there's several more uh, images here that I want to get through and then a little bit of church history okay I think that's the primary Um, but there's also several others and I'll give you an example from Acts 22 that is a little different this is Ananias talking to Saul before he becomes Paul this is what he says. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you, this is Acts twenty-two, fourteen, to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. He's talking about seeing Christ. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Another common, you know, idea is, is the idea of washing that we are really cleansed. It, you see how it ties into the idea of being dead with Christ. This is really just a small piece of it um, that we really are cleansed of our sins. That baptism again is not cleansing you of your sin; it is not actually washing your sin away. And we'll go into how that's very clear. But for the sake of this first section, I'll just say this: that we really are washed by the blood of Christ. And that's connected to our dying with him. That's another symbol here. One more, and this kind of uh, combines several of these. This is a, a passage that is kind of often confusing, but I'll, I'm going to try and be brief here. This is 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21. It says, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, He's talking about Noah, how Noah was saved through the ark. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a particularly confusing passage. We could probably do a whole message on this. But this is what I'll say to you about it for now, that this is combining several different images here in this short passage. I think that's why it's confusing, is it's, it's really condensed here. But basically, the three images are this that baptism is passing through the waters of judgment safely. That's Noah, right? The waters of judgment came for sin, but Noah was saved. Noah was safe. Having our conscience cleansed by forgiveness. You see how that's related to passing through the waters of judgment? And then, thirdly, all that through this new life in resurrection, new life in the resurrection of Jesus. Three different symbols all smashed in this one half verse, and so we pass through the waters of judgment unharmed because of what Christ did on the cross, just like Noah. Uh, Christ is our ark that saves us. We're cleansed by forgiveness, and we have new life through the resurrection of Jesus. We see all these different things. Um, I'll just keep going here just for the sake of time, and if you have questions, we can talk more about that. Again, I just want to say that this is an outward symbol of an inward reality. Very clear in that verse. It says it's like washing, Uh, not, but it says it saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. You see that there is something inward going on. There is actually faith in God that our conscience will be cleansed. That because we're dead, just like we talked about in Christ, that we really have our sins really have been paid for. We have a clean conscience. Because that sin's been paid for. And that person that loved the world, loved themselves more than then they wanted to follow God, that person really is gone, and there's a new person now. Why? Because Christ is new. He created, he created a, a new person. We're born again. Um, who we were is gone, and a new person is created. And so the reality um, is inward, and this is just the outward symbol. I'll give you an example. I'm going to try and make this really clear and give you an illustration. I think even a kid can understand this. If you're a little kid, you might want to look up here and see if you can remember this. Okay. I'm still waiting on all the little kids. See, if anybody can tell me what this is that I'm holding up. Anybody? Can anybody see this? Go ahead. A ring. Yeah, what kind of ring? Do you know? Not what it's made out of. It is metal. Yep. Why do I, I? Why do you? Why do I wear this ring on this finger? Does anybody know? yeah Just shout it out. It's a wedding ring. That's right. I married somebody. It's a wedding ring. Okay. Now I'm going to compare this to baptism, just to make it really clear. This is an outward symbol of, we could say, a spiritual reality or an inward reality. Okay? This is just a symbol. If I called one of the kids up here and I let them put on my wedding ring, would that be what would happen? Would I have to say, oh no, now, now they just took my wife. They, they're married to her. <laughs> no? Some of the, sometimes the kids will ask, well, I want to marry mom, you know, and things like that, or I want to wear your wedding ring. It's not how it works exactly. Okay? We don't have to get worried if I let someone put on my wedding ring. But, I'm going to say the reverse. Let's say somebody's married, but they don't want to wear their wedding ring. I don't like wearing that. Why not? Oh, I just don't, I don't really want people to, I just don't want to wear it. Well, do you do a dangerous job and, you know, have, you know, where it could be, you know, your, your finger could get caught some machinery. No, I just don't like wearing my wedding ring out. That could be a bad sign, though, couldn't it? I mean, even though it's an outward symbol of an inward reality, if you are totally refused, you know, I, I don't I don't like basically showing the outward symbol. That could be a red flag, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be. I mean, there could be reasons. Like like I said, if you work on machinery or stuff, you, you know, you take your wedding ring off. But if somebody just didn't want to do it, didn't want to wear it, it could be kind of a red flag. What's going on there? Okay, um, not necessarily, but could be. For the sake of this illustration, let's say it could be. And that's kind of the way baptism is. Is baptism do anything spiritually? Does it actually wash away your sins? No. It's an outward symbol of an inward reality. But if you really have trusted Christ and washed away your sins, wouldn't you want to obey what he asked and and to go out and to be baptized to show this is what really happened to me? Just in obedience. It doesn't actually do anything, but it would be a red flag if you refuse the outward symbol. I don't like I don't like that. Something's going on there. Something's not quite right. Whether that's an understanding thing or or what. But in the same way that putting on a wedding ring doesn't marry you, baptism doesn't wash away your sins. Baptism is the outward symbol of of a spiritual reality, of an inward reality of faith in Christ. And so when we well, Why we're going out to do baptisms is we're saying these people are really trusting Christ and they really believe their sins are washed away and they really have new life in Him. And I want to follow in obedience and I want to show that. Okay, I'm going to give you some examples of this from the Scriptures because this actually comes up pretty often. This idea that does baptism actually do anything? And I'll give you a couple examples, and maybe the way to frame this is not just more information and more points to have, you have to sit through, but think about it this way. If somebody came to you and said, no, 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 that's not how it works. Baptism is what washes away my sin. Baptism is how I'm saved. That's exactly the moment. That without baptism, there's not forgiveness of sins. What would you say? I mean, what, what verses would you go to? Is there anything that's really clear that you can, you can think of? Um, And I'll give you some here and just maybe file these away because this actually happens pretty often. That There's confusion on salvation, on a really important issue, that the gospel is that our faith in Christ is what saves us, that baptism is only an outward symbol of that. It's not actually what saves us. I'll give you a couple verses here. I'm going to go kind of quick, but I'll make you turn to one. If you want to turn there, it's going to take me a little bit to get there, but it's Acts 8. Okay, if you want to turn there, I'm gonna go through a couple of verses while you're turning there. Okay. Those who received the word were baptized. Acts two forty one. Notice that it says you those who received the word were baptized. It's you see that outward symbol of an inward reality. If you receive the word by well, we would add by faith, then you're baptized. Another this is also actually if you want to turn you're already there, Acts eight twelve. But when they believed, when they believed you see that? Acts 8:12, when they believed, when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. You see, their believers' baptism. Those who believed, when they heard and believed, they were baptized. Here's another section. We're going to come back to Acts eight, so stay there. This is later on in Acts. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? Who have, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus, and they asked him to remain for some days. So here Peter is having this conversation about Gentiles' inclusion into the kingdom. And here's what he says. How can we withhold water from baptizing these people who have, who have already received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Now you see there, this is Acts chapter 10, very clear. We don't receive the spirit of baptism. He is using, as a reason for baptizing them, exactly what we're saying. You see, baptism is an outward symbol of an inward reality. And he's saying, they have the inward reality. They have received the spirit. They have new life in Christ. How can we say you can't be baptized because you're a Gentile? And so you see the order there. We don't want to get the cart before the horse. We don't want to believe that that baptism actually is what brings the spirit into you. It's the opposite. We are baptized baptizing someone because of this inward reality already, already taking place. I want to give you a negative example. Okay, Those were positive examples. People that have the inward reality, so therefore they should have the outward symbol in that order. Now I'll give you a negative example from Acts chapter 8. This is the opposite. Someone who has the outward symbol but not the inward reality. This would be like if I wore a wedding ring and you said, oh, where's your wife? And I said, oh, I just, well, I just think this looks cool, and I think people think I'm cooler when I, if they think I'm married, but I'm not. (laughs) The wedding ring doesn't do anything, right? That would be kind of weird, but that's kind of what happens here in Acts chapter eight. Um, That's kind of actually a pretty accurate statement that someone wants to be identified and thinks Christ is cool, but doesn't have the inward reality. Okay, Acts chapter eight. This is Simon the magician. Skip around just a little bit, but uh, this is a negative example to show that you can be baptized outwardly and not have the inward reality. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon the Magician himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. We'll stop right there. So just a note about things in the Bible. It talks about people believing a lot. Um, And then... It just takes people basically at their word. And that's pretty much how baptism happened in the New Testament. People said, I believe. I really really want to trust Christ. And they baptized them. And that's what happened here. And whenever it says they believed, that could be like a John 2. Many believed in his name, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, for he knew what was in man. See, in that section it says they believed outwardly, but Jesus knew what was going on in their heart. Um, and so I think that's what we would say here. Now jumping down to verse 18. Just remember that Simon said, I, I believe and I, and I want to be baptized. But look what happens in Acts 8:18. 8, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you This leads to the last thing I want to remind you of. And this really relates to the things we already said about baptism as a symbol for repentance. Repentance. Um, And repentance is, as we already talked about, really tied into this forgiveness of sins and this new life in Christ, so turning. Um, And you see that here, that Simon was baptized, but Peter tells him, you don't have any part in this matter. You need to repent. This really reminds me of this section in Matthew where John the Baptist is baptizing for repentance, and he says pretty much the same thing. I'll read this section to you. I want you to notice these similarities. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then in Jerusalem and in all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay, so this is another clue here that baptism is just an outward symbol of an inward reality. Because he's saying, baptism for repentance. Repent and be baptized. Then the Pharisees come, and he says, you don't have any fruits of repentance. You don't have the inward reality. What are you doing here? You need the inward reality. And I don't know if they actually asked to be baptized. It's not super clear from the text there, but they were at least observers. And he's making this you know, sermon at, at a baptism. You need the inward reality. You really need repentance. You need uh, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so I connect these in my mind, this and Simon the Magician. These are negative examples of an outward symbol of an inward reality. The baptism is is what happens after repentance. And it's an outward symbol of our repentance, of our new life in Christ, of our death with Christ, of our sins being washed, of being delivered through the waters of judgment. Now this leads to a question. um, Why what age do we baptize people? This is actually a kind of controversial question that splits denominations. And I'll give you uh, several verses here. There's no verse that talks specifically about ages at baptism. I'll start by saying that. That they're only hints. And we just um, we just... Don't have any examples of age of age being re- relayed really. For example, Spurgeon, you guys like Spurgeon. He said, um, I like Spurgeon too, and he's, he <laughs> he said somebody asked him what verse he would you know talk about with infant baptism, and he said, well yeah, I know exactly the verse I would talk about with infant baptism. Job one one. There was a man from land of us, and his name was Job. And they said, well, what does that have to do with infant baptism? He says, nothing, just like all the other verses. (laughs) 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 And so (laughs) it's an argument from silence. And the best interpretation is, we read earlier where it connected circumcision to baptism. That is the closest that anything comes to connecting baptism to an age. And it's very tenuous um, because... We baptize ladies, <laughs> you know, um, there's there's a lot of reasons that that circumcision at the you know seven days old doesn't necessarily mean we should baptize at seven days old. Um, and so it's just a tenuous connection. But there are verses that talk about whole households being baptized. Uh, I'll read a couple of those to you and just make a couple comments. This is Paul when the jailer um, was converted when he was in Paul was in jail. And he took them, the jailer, that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house, and he set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. I'm going to compare that to another verse about the whole household being baptized. This is Acts 18. This is a different person. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, and together with his his entire household and many of the Corinthians, hearing... Paul believed and were baptized. The reason I bring that one up is another example, but this one makes it clear that he and his household together believed. So, uh, although the first one, it doesn't explicitly say that his whole household believed, the second one does, and I think that's what's going on here, is that his household was baptized because they believed. And we see that clearly with Crispus. Um, And so, one more verse on this baptism. So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. That's in Acts chapter 2. Those who received the word were baptized. Throughout the whole New Testament, we see believers' baptism. That those who believed, the only time where you could really say, maybe believers weren't baptized, maybe it was little kids, maybe it was other people, is times where it doesn't explicitly say, all of them believed. Um, But even in those examples, we see parallel examples where it does make it clear. And so I would say, that the New Testament, throughout throughout the whole New Testament, that it's believers' baptism, that it's not infants, um, it's those who have believed. And so that's why we baptize believers. And the, in terms of age, um, I would say those who believe, those who really understand that Christ died for the sins and, and repent. And one thing I want to talk about, just briefly here, is... I think in many ways, the way the New Testament looked at baptism and the way we looked at it have maybe been a little bit reversed. We want to be biblical, right? We want to do what God wanted. And in the New Testament, we really see that people who want to be baptized and who are saying, I, my sins are forgiven, uh, and I want to show that, they baptize them, and they actually do it pretty quickly. Um, that same day, many times a whole household hearing and, and that night being baptized. And so we don't see a, that there's no concern for the reality because we see, for example, John, like we talked about. When, those, when the Pharisees came, he, he's basically saying, you don't have the inward reality. So it seems like what's going on here is in the New Testament, people were looking for red flags. Right. If there's a really big red flag that somebody does not have the inward reality, um, they wouldn't baptize them. But if somebody does, seems to, and there's no red flags, they would baptize them. And in modern evangelical America and and in our church in many ways, I think we've kind of reversed it, where we wait for a lot of green flags before we jump in and baptize somebody. And... I think there's a right desire in that because we don't want to do it flippantly. But we also don't want to be unbiblical. And so it's okay if somebody wants to be baptized um, to baptize them. And people are going to be at all different stages. Younger kids are going to show evidence differently than older kids and then adults. A 20-year-old then a 70-year-old. And a 2-year-old um, is probably... Not going to be able to answer some of the questions. I would, if you ask a two-year-old about forgiveness of sins, then that could be a red flag. They don't know, you know, they don't know what's going on. But if a five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old really seems to be trusting the Lord, that is okay to baptize them. And we see even the apostles got it wrong sometimes, right? We see Simon the magician, and what what did they do? They're willing to just go back and talk through it again, and to tell them, repent. Believe the gospel. Be forgiven. And that's what we can do too. That no matter how many, how long we wait, we're never going to get 100% accuracy, right? If we made it 99 years, <laughs> we still might have, you know, uh, after 99 years of probation, you can get baptized. We still might um, have people that have, you know, a false profession, and that's okay. Uh, because Christ, in his command to us, did not call us To separate the wheat from the tares, he just called us to baptize those who are saying they believe. And that gives me to another point that I want. This is just a lot of thoughts on baptism. Um, i kind of going kind of quick here, but who baptizes the person? This is another thing where the New Testament example is a little bit different than ours. Because we see lots of different people actually baptizing. Um, People that aren't necessarily pastors or apostles. And I'll give you a verse that I feel like is kind of the nail in the coffin on this. For me personally, I want you just to think about it. You know this verse, okay? All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Remember what it says next? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, as evangelicals, we call this Great Commission. But that's just for pastors, right? No. <laughs> the Great Commission is for all of us. And we really believe that. That all of us are called to be going out and making disciples, sharing the gospel. But in the same sentence, in the list of things we ought to do, it says, make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if a dad wanted to baptize his kid, that would be okay. It would be very hard to prove Exegetically, I think that that's not okay um, because we definitely believe the Great Commission is for everyone, and so just getting that out there. Um, there's other examples. I won't go into those, um, but of non-pastors, you know, just regular people baptizing um, in, you know. Um, so just getting that out there. Okay. I don't want to go too long. Okay. I'm going to try and give you a really short, really, really short church history lesson here. Because the question that some people would have is, kind of the impression that we have is that believer's baptism kind of started, once again, pretty late in church history. That we see in the New Testament, it it really looks like believer's baptism. But where is believer's baptism until, you know around Luther's time. Wasn't there a lot of infant baptism? And there there was a lot of infant baptism um, at that time. But it wasn't absent. And actually, even as early as um, even as early as Constantine, we have record of people baptizing believers and actually being persecuted for it. And so I'm going to give you a couple examples here. And one, I just want you to know that believers' baptism has been practiced from the apostles all the way through history. Um, but also that we can just be thankful that this beautiful symbol of the inward reality of what Christ has done that we're going to witness later today, it's special that we can go out and do this without persecution. It's actually quite rare. Even in the world today, um, in parts of India, there's anti-conversion laws, and the line is baptism. Okay, In the Muslim world, you know, this is common, that somebody wants to read the Bible, somebody wants to go to a Christian church, yeah, that's well, that's a little weird, but you want to be baptized? No. And it's it's a clear marker of commitment. And there's actually my favorite group in church history. is called the Waldensians. And so the Waldensians were in France. There was a guy named Peter Waldo. This was in the 1100s. He wanted to translate the Bible into French. And so he translated the Gospels into French. And so a lot of times when we think about having the Bible in our own language, we think of some of the English... Um, people that lived and died to do this and were persecuted by the Catholic Church. And at least for me personally, I haven't heard a lot about this guy, Peter Waldo, but it's really encouraging. It's my favorite section in church history, but it's on the um, eastern side of France near Switzerland. And he translated the Bible, the four Gospels specifically, into French, and he passed them out. And it really changed the world. And actually, the idea that we have of the, of, you know, the Catholic Roman Catholic Church persecuting people for having the Bible in their own language, that started just a, uh, roughly uh, in close to 100 years uh, around the time of Peter, Peter Waldo and th- this spreading. So I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that this idea of the Bible in our own language and that the access to it, that they really tried to clamp it down. And it wasn't until after this started happening and really spreading and there was a real seemingly repentance That happened, um, and a lot of people became, they called him Waldensians because his name was Waldo. And uh, his last name was Waldo. And then they finally decided in the 1200s is when the Catholic Church decided, yeah, we're going to put the Bible on the banned book list. Uh, If it's in your own language, it's not in Latin. And so it's pretty amazing here. But it seems like, again, from the 1100s, we're kind of piecing a lot of things together. And so uh, there's not a lot of documentation, but it seems like they were believers they believed in believers' baptism. Here's a quote from um, here's a quote from Luther. This is later on, but this is what Luther this is Luther referencing the Waldensians. This is what he says the Waldensians believed. Again, this is later, but he's at least closer to the Waldensians than we are. Uh, a lot closer. He says this that these brethren hold the idea that every man must believe for himself and on the basis of his own faith receive baptism and that otherwise the baptism or the sacrament is useless that sounds like what we believe (laughs) and that's encouraging and they were they were persecuted Um, the waldensians were persecuted really bad by the catholic church over the years and there's some famous infamous things like where the um, many many waldensians were killed in this area of france but they believed in believers' baptism. And I'll give you one quote here. This is a pretty amazing quote to give you a feeling of the effect that these believers who really believe the true gospel, who were, believed in believers' baptism, were sharing the gospel and wanting people to have it in their own language. Um, this, is, this is a person from uh, Paris. He was at the Cathedral Notre Dame. He was it's called the Dean of Notre Dame. He said this. uh, The dean of Notre-Dame and Arras. Oh, no, this is not the one in Paris. This is a different one. Um, Take that back, what I said. He said this. He's he's complaining here. He does not like this. One-third of Christendom, if not more, has attended the illegal Waldensian Conventicles, and at heart is a Waldensian. So at the time, this is way before the Reformation, okay? Uh, At this time... They're saying, he's saying that a third of, pe- a third of the people um, that we, you know, would think of is in this time where the, it's 100% Roman Catholic and we ha- have hardly any evidence of, you know, evangelicals, what we would identify with the, the modern-day evangelical. Where are they? Well, this guy is complaining that a third have gone to these illegal Waldensian confin- gatherings and is at heart a Waldensian. He's saying there's all these people believing in believers' baptism and reading the Bible, wanting to read the Bible in their own language, and I think it could be a third. <laughs> That's really amazing, um, and so I, I don't know what the actual numbers are, and this is in France, but it's pretty amazing to hear and to know. You know, we don't hear a lot of pre-Reformation reformers basically, and so we can just be thankful that we have the ability to baptize believers. That this is a big, big privilege. And that many people have actually died um, just by confessing that they want to be baptized because they're a believer. Uh, even one thing that's really sad is that during the Reformation, a lot, you know, uh, salvation by grace was really emphasized. But those people who really believed in believers' baptism were persecuted, and actually, many, many, many died. I'll give you an example. There's, a, there's good things about the reformers, but this is really a negative area, is that they persecuted those who wanted to be baptized. They called them Anabaptists, which means rebaptizers, or in uh, I'm going to really butcher this. This is German, Weidertoffer, which basically means rebaptizer. Um, and I probably said that wrong. But this is what Zwingli said, which I appreciate Zwingli a lot. This is not good. This is a bad example. But he said this: Let them who talks about going under go under the water. Uh, this is basically he says you want to be baptized as a believer, let's drown you. And it's kind of a, not only is it criticizing them, it's persecuting them, it's making fun of them for it. So if we're going to kill you and you're a baptizer, let's drown you. And actually, that happened in that very city. Um, in uh, the river, there's the Lamotte. Felix Mance, later on, is one, one particular person that was drowned for for wanting to be Baptized as a believer and sharing that he, he believed that, and so all that is to say, it's a beautiful symbol, you know, of an inward reality. Aren't we thankful that we're made new by the blood of Jesus? Aren't we thankful that we really are united with Him in a death, in His death, that our sins are not held to our account, that we really have access to new life in Christ? And two, the other thing is that I. We have a great privilege and joy to be able to just do this freely. And it's very, very rare. And I just gave you a short overview. I just picked one group, the Waldensians. There's so many that we could we do could a whole series. Um, I could have spent the whole time just talking about church history on this. But the reality is, is that this is a wonderful reality. And we can just be thankful. Thankful for what Christ has done. On the cross, in his resurrection, but also that we get to go out, you know, to the lake in public and baptize without fear of persecution. And we might just pray, you know, pray, you know, pray for people who are in places that this isn't the case. We talked about a couple of those, but why don't we close with that? Father, we are thankful, Um, thankful for new life in Christ, thankful for the gospel thankful that our sins can be forgiven and we're thankful for these professions of faith and um, we're thankful that sins can be forgiven and um, there is new life thank you for each one of the conversions that we could just trace them all back to you and give them give you the glory and all praise that you saved us and you didn't let us keep going but at the same time we want to pray for the people who are in places where This isn't the case. They can't freely go out and be baptized, pray for people in the Muslim world, pray for people in the Hindu world. Um, Have mercy. Have mercy on them. I pray you'd strengthen them, protect them, uh, give them help by your spirit as they want to follow you even at the cost of, of their lives. And we thank you for them. We thank you for the testimonies of people throughout history that want to follow you no matter the cost. I pray you'd help us today um, just to rejoice in you and what you've done. We ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.